Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it is we're coming up on Thanksgiving week, and I'll tell you, baseball has given me something to be thankful for. We have a lot of trades to talk about today, um, but before we get into that, how have you been doing these last couple weeks? How's, how's the beginning of the offseason treating you? You know, it was a little bit slow, but as we're taping this on a Saturday, the previous night was Friday night. It felt like a mini trade deadline. There was so much going on. Um, I, it was really fun, I thought. They're like, wow, there's all this activity. No major stuff happening yet, but a lot of house cleaning, which we'll talk about. Um, and it's fun in that respect. And a good handful of names that you maybe didn't have at the top of your list as as guys who would be traded, you know, and, and you look on it with hindsight and it makes sense, but... You know, I don't think anybody necessarily had money down on Kyle Wright going anywhere, at least at this point in the yeah, offseason. There um, are always surprises, yeah. Yeah, but we will absolutely get into that. Um, honestly, we need to just break right into that because there's so many of these moves to talk about. Um, and they range from pretty interesting to, yeah, just shuffling around deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, looking at UAs. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go ahead and start with those with those Braves. They made a good handful of moves here. Um, they had a ton of arbitration eligible players and that, that was really the onus for most of these moves was that on Friday night, the 17th was the deadline for non-tendering players uh, who are arbitration eligible or some players who are pre-arbitration um, choosing not to tender them a contract before that deadline. Otherwise they would be locked in. And I believe in the new CBA, Um, if you don't non-tender by the deadline, there there used to be like a provision where you would only have to pay a portion of the contract. Ultimately, uh, if you cut that player in like spring training, I think that got removed or adjusted somehow, but basically if you have a player in their arbitration years and you don't want to pay them their projected arbitration salary or whatever you can agree with under that number, last night was the deadline to cut those players loose and let them be free agents and join the rest of the market. So plenty of teams shuffling around pieces to, uh, to get guys off their roster and get what value they could for guys. They were going to non tender before that. And the Braves did a ton of that. So the first trade that came through the wire for them was when they acquired left-handed reliever, Aaron bummer from the white Sox in exchange for five players. It was Michael Soroka, former big name, but he was a non-tender candidate. We'll talk more about him in a minute. Jared Schuster, middle infielders Nicky Lopez and Braden Shoemake, and right-handed pitcher Riley Goins. And so the way the values worked out from that one off the bat was Bummer at 1.0 in trade value in exchange for Lopez, we had at 5.1. Braden Shoemake, we had at 2.0. Schuster, we had at 2.4. Soroka at negative three, again, a non-tender candidate, and Goins, who isn't in the system yet. Um, so that that deal on face value, tentatively accepted by the model as a moderate overpay by Atlanta. Um, you can see there's a bit of a gap there with just the one million for Bummer and about six-ish in that range going the other direction, uh, six or eight-ish. And the large gap there is coming from Nicky Lopez. Um he was acquired for basically nothing at the deadline, and he's a good glove. He's not much of a hitter, and he's getting more expensive into arbitration years. So it makes sense that he wouldn't have much value in, in a trade sense, but we've talked about this a lot before of 
it's it's very tricky to calibrate the model for some of these glove first less bat middle infielders because if you're just looking at war they're still going to produce they're still going to have some value some versatility and and productivity on defense it's just not a skill set that's very valued by teams since it is so readily available yeah so <clears throat> it was yet another indication that the light hitting not just in infielders it's more often infielders but sometimes outfielders as well or backup catchers um there's just not much of a demand for them so they get passed around a lot and nikki lopez is the latest example of that so it just was a reminder like oh yeah we need to adjust for that in our model and so since then it was you know we've seen tons of, re of evidence of that we try not to overfit for any particular profile but there's clearly a trend with with you know that type of profile not being very much in demand so your larger point is the gap in the values was largely because of you know that that issue that we have with uh nikki lopez being too high if you if you discount for that if you go back to where he was at the deadline we had him at 0 0.5 so you know if he was around there somewhere which he probably should have been it's a pretty even trade the other thing to unpack here is that we had Soroka at minus three, and we got a very interesting question on Twitter about that. Uh, one of one of uh, our followers said, "Well, wouldn't you know if he's a non-tender, wouldn't he be zero? And, and I said, "Yeah, you're right, but he's not a non-tender. <clears throat> they actually traded for him because they want to see if they can get something out of him. So, so that means they are committed to paying him his arbitration salary, which is three million dollars, apparently, or ever was is projected." So they're going to take a risk, basically, that they get something out of that $3 million. And what we're saying in our model is it's unlikely that that's going to pay off. He's been injured so much and he's had so many issues that the high probability is you're going to get zero value out of him on the field and you're going to end up eating that $3 million. So that's why we have him at minus three instead of zero, which brings the, the value of the trade down as well. Yeah, non-tender candidates are interesting because, you know, let's let's say we're halfway through the season and you have a player on a league minimum salary who isn't really a prospect and isn't playing well at all. You know, he's a below replacement level player. Well, from a field value perspective, he would go negative. He would go pretty far negative, but we know, you know, just from a logical standpoint of there's no reason for a player's value to dip below his salary, because if you truly is a below replacement level player and he's truly valued at that skill level then teams just wouldn't play him and you know they would cut him and all they have to pay is the salary and that's all the hit that they're taking the league right. minimum or whatever with these non-tender candidates in the offseason it's a little bit different and a little bit interesting because there's there's fundamentally the same sort of idea of like like i totally understand the approach of well he should just be a zero because you know, if they don't want him, if they don't think he's going to be worth that, then they just cut him, which is which is true. And what we saw for a lot of players across the league, they cut these guys at zero cost to the team themselves. And you, you look at their their like team rosters now and they no longer have that negative five or negative three or whatever that would have been of, of the projected salary for these guys. But on the flip side of it, what if they decided to keep him? and decided to pay him that $3 million. or another team like the White Sox steps in and does decide to keep him and, and pay that $3 million. Well, now they are locked into it, and like you said, the model just doesn't project them to be worth that level of value on the field. So even if this team has willingly said, yes, we're going we're gonna to keep this guy on at this price tag, and maybe it's because they think he'll overperform, or maybe, you know, 
you're the White Sox and you're kind of just going through the scrap heap looking for upside and you you don't have a whole lot else to spend your money on. So you can afford to spend three, $3 million that's probably sunk cost um, on the chance that you can turn Soroka around. Like that's a decent little gamble for you. Yeah, um, but, it's but basically even despite like... that, it doesn't change the fact that they're not projected to be worth that much on the field. And so we have to kind of call it what it is. The odds are what they are. So they're basically just putting chips down on number 36 on the roulette table and hoping it hits. But it's probably not. It's going to, right? So then they're going to be out that money. Yeah. And the other side of this as well for the Braves is we, we talked about this on the last episode when we talked about how they extended uh, Pierce Johnson and Joe Jimenez. And they have a pretty decent track record at this point of paying what looks like above market rate for relievers. And a lot of the time it's worked out for them. You know, Pierce Johnson, they overpaid a little bit for him at the deadline and he was really good for them down the stretch or Rysel Iglesias. They, at the time, appeared appeared like it was a pretty big overpay to get him from the Angels and he was pretty solid for them as a reliever since then. So I'm not saying it's necessarily a mistake on their part or that they're getting blown out of the water on these deals or anything, but they are kind of picking their guys that they like as relievers and they're not going to let a couple million dollars in value here and there stop them. They're going to get those guys and keep those guys. And it seems like bummer is a guy that they pretty aggressively targeted, identified and said, let's bring him in. And all it really costs them, you know, after you kind of make this kind of mental adjustment for Nikki Lopez what it costs them is a couple of bench guys in bench slash depth guys in Lopez and Soroka that they were probably leaning toward non-tendering anyway to save a few bucks. And then a couple very fringy prospects in Shoemake and Schuster and, and go and gallons as well, where those guys just weren't going to make their way onto the team. Really? They, there was no real path for them. The Braves are so loaded that, you know, Shoemake is not going to find a starting role anywhere on that team anytime soon. So it's not really at any cost to them. And if Bummer is a guy they like and he has a little bit of team control left and he's a lefty and his peripherals were better than his ERA last year and maybe they see something in him and on and on and on, then it's kind of a no-brainer, again, even if, if the numbers don't line up exactly on paper. And, and the Braves have shown a willingness to just make the move that makes sense for them, whether or not it lines up purely perfectly. Yeah, well said. And um, just on Shoemake, I remember when he was one of the higher-rated prospects in the Braves system. Um, but he's going to be 26 in the 2024 season, and he still hasn't even hit above 100 WRC plus in the last few years. So he's a glove-only guy, yet another one. So he's basically just a flyer. You know, doesn't look like a major league hitter. You know, given the fact that he hasn't hit Triple A pitching in four years, so I don't think there's much there. So basically, it was a quantity. It was basically just like a bag of <laughs> a bag of donuts, basically for for the White Sox, and they were hoping one of them tastes good. Though one of them, it's not a good analogy, but you know what I'm saying. It's it's a quantity trade, hoping one or two hit. Basically, it probably won't pay off, but the one million surplus value that they gave up in cost savings for for Bummer, it's worth a bag of chips. Okay, that's a better analogy. Yeah, and it's it's the combination for the Braves as well of opening up roster spots, opening up a little bit of cash here and there, making the upgrade in the bullpen. It, it just makes a lot of sense on both ends. You got the White Sox doing the typical rebuilding. You know, relievers don't have any real purpose to a rebuilding team unless you think their value is going to spike and they'll be worth more in the future. And more often than not, that is not the case. So real no-brainer on both sides, even if it's just, like you said, just kind of a grab bag bunch of 
lottery ticket types who probably won't amount to too much. That's a team that could use some warm bodies. You know, it's, it's a team that can use a Nicky Lopez standing at second base for them 80 or 100 games out of the year to, you know, get get through a season. Yeah, and, and you know, Coles Montgomery, their top prospect is a shortstop and likely viewed as their future shortstop, which is, okay, so they non-tendered Tim Anderson, which I thought was the right call. And so they've got a, they basically just needed a placeholder until Montgomery is ready, which maybe second half of 2024, he'll be ready. So Lopez slash Shoemake will basically hold the fort until then. Yeah, and I think that's a fairly reasonable path forward for them they have they have a lot more difficult decisions to make this off season and this seems like one of the easier ones that they got it out of the way early yeah um moving on to the other moves that the braves made uh interesting kind of challenge trade they made with the royals where they traded kyle wright like i mentioned before um and kyle wright we had at 3.5 million in median trade value so they send him to the royals straight up in exchange for jackson coar who we had at zero million um these are two former top prospects wright was a bit high bit more highly regarded than coar but both highly regarded prospects in their own rights um and nothing has to this point in their career things haven't quite gone according to plan uh, right, he had a pretty strong season last year, but this year could not get it going and missed a lot of time. And now he's going to miss the entirety of 2024 with a shoulder surgery. Shoulders are always scary, and sometimes that just means it's the end of a guy's career. And and there's there's a lot of reason to be concerned there for Kyle Wright. And so on the surface of of how highly regarded he was and how solid he was for the Braves last year, this seems crazy. But if you're looking at an entirely shot 2024 who knows what you get in 2025 and he's getting closer to free agency and he's making some real money in that span. And there's a whole lot of reasons it makes sense for the Braves to cut ties. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a little bit like Soroka, except they're doing it while he has a little bit of value left to him, you know, maybe a year ahead of the Soroka timeline. Um, so, but on, on the Royal side of it, they have all the reason in the world to take a chance on this guy. And they can afford to give him the time that he needs. And if he comes back and is that same Kyle Wright for them, then it's a steal. Um, the other side of this deal with Coar, we have him at zero because, again, he starts from kind of a lower spot than Wright. He wasn't quite as highly regarded as a prospect, and he's been pretty miserable in the big leagues. Um, but he does still have some some level of upside in him you could argue and he does have a fourth option it was reported so there's a little bit of roster flexibility there for the Braves and they're still kind of trying to piece together that pitching staff the rotation doesn't look as strong as it did six months ago given the injuries to Wright and you know Morton is getting older Max Fried is going to be a free agent after this year uh, they, they have some questions to answer there, and I'm not saying they necessarily view Cowar Coar as any any part of that solution, but it's another buy low arm with some roster flexibility who can potentially be a part of the answer. Yeah, I think they see him as a bullpen arm strictly. I mean, the one thing he has going for him is he can throw 96.9 is his average fastball velocity. He can't control where it's going. He's If you look at his walks per nine, even in AAA, they're all over the place. They're really high. And so that's why he's been a negative war pitcher in the major leagues. He has not had 
you know, he's basically had three years to try to do something in the major leagues, and it's been god awful. Which is why he has a, he's at zero. I mean, there's a lot of guys who can throw 96 and not hit the hit the plate. So, uh, but maybe the Braves can sort of work with him on that. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> you know, change the scenery. You know, it's always a bit. But you know, there's no reason to suspect. Um, you know, a miracle at this point because the obvious evidence is overwhelmingly that he he's not a major league pitcher. So, good luck to them. Maybe they can figure it out. Uh, they do have that fastball to work with, and 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 go from there. So he's just a total flyer. So, you know, it's it's you know, I think as you pointed out in a tweet, you know, the Rays. I mean, sorry, the Braves. Um, you know, have no use for Wright on the roster if he's going to be out all year, right? So they're they're saving the spot basically, and they're giving Cower a shot for the bullpen and they're saving a spot because you know they're going to probably sign a free agent and or make a trade for for a starter so they need that spot for that yeah and you can look at just the numbers themselves and see a bit of a gap here and i think as well you know i i think it's i i prefer the royal side of this i like taking a chance on right here that being said the shoulder injury just makes for a pretty large error bar on that 3.5 it's so up in the air you know it, it's there's no tommy john for shoulders necessarily it's it's a really kind of touch and go process and a lot of the times like i said it just it just means a guy's never the same again yeah and that happens that happens far more with shoulder injuries than elbow injuries elbow injuries are largely fixable to a point but shoulder injuries yeah to your point the error bar is much wider and they don't often come back the same so yeah that's that's why there's a big risk there yeah and then uh, speaking of Braves trades of potential non-tenders with shoulder issues, that takes us into their last move here, uh, which is they traded right-handed pitcher Nick Anderson to the Royals earlier that day uh, for just cash considerations. And this one caught me a little bit off guard because when I went to go take a look at Anderson on the site, uh, we had his value at 11.7, positive 11.7 in surplus. That We had 15.7 field value against four for salary. And when you look at his numbers on fan graphs, he pitched very well last year. And he's a guy with a track record of pitching well. And, you know, maybe he's not that dominant arm closer type that he was at one point for the Rays, but he's still a really good pitcher. And so why is this guy getting shuffled around for for cash, for not even any substantial return and why was it being reported that anderson was going to be non-tendered if they didn't trade him and it's because of a shoulder a shoulder injury that shut him down for basically the entire second half of last season and again that that's something that really tanks a guy's value that really puts his future into question especially when you're talking about a reliever especially when you're talking about a guy going into his mid-30s at this point there's just all the question marks in the world now, and uh, that that 11.7 isn't quite accurate because it no. didn't quite have that baked in. No, because we didn't we didn't have the injury baked in. We didn't. That was our miss. Um, and sometimes we, you know we we don't see the medicals. Obviously, we don't have you know there's hip issues and everything. We we can't see that. But clearly, uh, we should have caught the fact that he's been out since July, I think it was, and didn't quite come back. So it's hard to tell from our vantage point how bad an injury is. Like, there are a number of reasons why he could have been out. Maybe it was minor, maybe it was major, we don't know. Clearly, it was much more major than than the public understood. So we're only reflecting public information here. So uh, clearly, the Braves knew he was he was much worse off. So, um, so yeah, I just talk it up to that. Yeah, I mean, 
there's certainly some cases where guys will have some shoulder discomfort, miss some time, and come back and be fine. I sure can't think of any off the top of my head, and the two that come to the top of my mind instead are Frankie Montas and Tyler Maley last year, where both were having shoulder issues and ended up missing time the same year they were acquired, and then the following season they tried to make it back and could not, and ended up missing almost the entire 2023 season. I think Maley made a few starts before having to go ahead and have Tommy John, I think it was. Um, I think he ended up having elbow, and that could have been related to the shoulder issues as well. And then uh, Montas missed the entire season with shoulder issues. I, he might have come back for an inning or two at the end of the year. but Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's killed many a career. So, yeah, it's not it's not to be taken lightly. So, yeah. so who so, knows if Anderson has anything left in the tank, but this may be the issue there. Right, right. Okay, let's move to a different team now. A uh, really interesting challenge trade kind of here as well, and one that seems a little bit lopsided, at least to me. Um, the Guardians and the Padres. Uh, the Guardians acquired Scott Barlow, right-handed reliever, uh, who we had at $4.6 million in trade value from the Padres in exchange for right-handed reliever Eniel de los Santos, who we had at 11.5. So pretty big gap there. Just barely makes it through the model, except it is a major overpay by Cleveland. And... It's a bit of a head scratcher. I mean, I can see I can see an argument to it for Cleveland being Barlow has shown a level of upside that De Los Santos has not. He was very, very good in 2021. He was worth more than two wins on Fangrass, which is very difficult for a reliever. And that's there there is a premium that gets paid for true lockdown late inning arms. De Los Santos, on the other end, is a guy who kind of bounced around on waivers and found a good footing in Cleveland and looked like a pretty solid reliever. Not quite at that 2021 Barlow level, but as, as a usable reliever who can cover some innings. And, you know, if, if that's all there was to it, that, okay, the Guardians were prioritizing this later leverage type arm while the Padres were good with just getting a guy who can maybe throw multiple innings at a time and maybe eat some of those middle innings like that's kind of okay enough on its own but then you have to factor in some of the other elements of this deal of Barlow is much more expensive and he's in his final year of arbitration he's older and once you bake all of that in that's where you really get into this value gap of this is one year of an older Scott Barlow in exchange for multiple years of a younger, cheaper Eniel de los Santos. And by the way, they've pitched pretty, pretty similarly the past couple seasons. So you really have to be banking on Barlow getting back to that 2021 in order to make this look well, look look like a good deal for Cleveland. That's at least my take on it. Um, John, I'd be interested to hear if you had any differing opinions there. I mean, I look, I, I... I thought it was a head-scratcher as well because Cleveland's M.O. is always trade short control for long control, right? They, a guy has one year left for control. They pretty – especially a pitcher, they will trade him for a guy with four or five years of control. Here they're doing the opposite. Here they're trading a guy with three years of control for a guy with one who's more expensive, by the way. Um, and on paper, it doesn't look that much different. The only thing that separates them is that longer track record. Um, so you could argue that, and I'm squinting here, but 
basically Cleveland might see an opportunity to compete in 2024. I mean, they're, ne they're never a team that tanks, right? They're always sort of recharging. But, you know, maybe they're seeing a window of opportunity in the AL Central, which is a weak division. They know the Twins are have said that they're going to cut uh, salary. Um, so maybe they're thinking, okay, the division's winnable. And so let's make sure we have our late innings locked down with reliable guys. And maybe they needed one more reliable guy. I'm squinting. Again, I'm squinting here, but I think this is the case. And Barlow is, you know, they've seen him a lot because he's pitched mostly in the AL Central for the Royals. So they're like, okay, that guy, we could use him in the eighth inning before Class A. Okay, great. Um, and they want to just go for it. I mean, it's a win now move, is what it is for Cleveland, which is unusual for them. It's usually like, for Cleveland, it's usually like, yeah, let's try it. Oh, if it doesn't work out, we'll try the next year. This is a win-now move. This is a guy who's expensive for one year, who has, you know, has been a closer. So, and, but De Los Santos has been on the, you know, up and up. I mean, his numbers were almost as good as Barlow's, if not the same. And, and the one thing, other thing that pointed, that um, one of our uh, followers pointed out on Twitter is that if you break down the leverage index on De Los Santos, in low leverage, he's really good. Mid leverage, pretty good. High leverage, he has not been as good. He's been giving up some some runs. And so maybe there's that. If you really dig in, you can kind of find a nuance there. Like, And other people have said that, yeah, Barlow has been used in high leverage much more than Dos Santos has. So you got to figure maybe that's the reason. That's all I got. It's also, as soon as you start drilling into the leverage there, especially for a reliever with only one or two years of actual usage as a re leverage reliever, you're drilling into smaller and smaller sample sizes as you go. And this is also True. a team that has Class A entrenched in that highest leverage ninth inning role. So it's a case of there's not quite as many opportunities for De Los Santos. And I, I think I think there may be something there. I think there also may be a good amount of noise clouding that. Um, but, but I think there is something to be said for a guy that you truly trust to throw into those innings. It seems like teams really do value that, whether that's correct or not, like kind of analytically, sabermetrically speaking. I, I think that is still something that teams really value. And I think it's, it's fair to say that Barlow has some of that untangible, some of that it factor that De Los Santos might not. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to counter that yet again and say, look, most of those leverage innings were for the Royals, who were one of the worst teams in baseball. So it's not like they won that many games. It's not like he was in that many situations that mattered for the Royals. So let's, let's take that with a grain of salt. And when he was traded to the Padres, they were using him in like in the sixth, sometimes the seventh. But they he was not taking a hater's job as a closer, right? So it's not like if you really break it down, Barlow was – all that trusted in high leverage either you know um so again <clears throat> i think it's a win now move for cleveland good for them for going for it it's against their mo but it was a smarter deal in the long run for the padres and our values reflect that yeah and there's a whole lot else to unpack here with both of these teams where both of these teams are feeling what's been happening with diamond sports, Valley sports, whatever you want to call them. Um, there, I think there was a report that came out this past week about the guardians potentially rolling payroll or, or whether rolling payroll, payroll back or just not pushing it as far as they might be able to otherwise, because they're potentially going to be dropped by Bally as well. And that's a, a revenue stream that they would be losing. That's a bit odd when paired with this deal where they are adding payroll and, and on a one-year deal in Barlow. So that's kind of interesting. And then, of course, the flip side of this, we've known for a while about the Padres' payroll situation. 
and complicating matters even further we we the unfortunate news this week that their primary chairman owner whatever you would like to call him peter seidler passed away and that well well first and foremost just being pretty sad <laughs> pretty disappointing this was a guy who really overhauled that franchise in a short manner of years and made them watchable made them the team to watch and and really wasn't afraid to push all of his chips in in a way that I think other owners could learn from but then when you get down onto the 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 baseball side of things it really just makes it even more complicated in San Diego of what is next for this franchise what do they do with Juan Soto how do they make the money work this year with everything swirling around this team you know this is a team that a year ago, two years ago at this time, you would have said they'd be first in line in the Otani sweepstakes once he was a free agent. And I don't think I've even seen them connected to him at all because of everything that's going on there. Um, there's a ton that needs to be unpacked there and that I'm sure we will unpack over the course of the offseason. I don't know if there's too much to dig into right now other than there there has been some buzz on Soto. Do you want to maybe take it from there and, and yeah. what, what's the latest on so... Soto and what do we think is happening there? Um, well, there's been cl- conflicting reports. Buster only said a few days ago that it was 100% that he was going to get traded, 100% probability. Others have been not quite as absolute as that. Um, so I have no idea because I'm not a reporter. Um, but look, what we do know is that Peter Seidler has passed away, unfortunately, and he was the the one who was pushing the chips in. He was the aggressive voice that was saying to AJ Preller, go for it, go for it, go for it. And AJ Preller was like, okay, I'm doing my thing. And and now he's gone, unfortunately. And so his former business partner has uh, has taken control of the team as kind of a controlling person who apparently wasn't all that involved before. And we have no idea what his philosophy will be, whether he's going to pull back or keep going for it. That is the big unknown. All we know so far is that they want to get their budget down. And so, you know, trading Barlow was a small way of doing that. They saved about $6 million or so there. Um, you know, non-tender, or uh, they've lost a few guys like Hader, you know, who have, you know, have gone on to free agency. They're saving some bucks there. Um, but trading Soto, who's, who's scheduled to make $33 million, seems like the big fish. That's the way they're going to save some money. So the question comes, what is your priority? Are you going to go for it, or are you going to – cut budget, in which case Soto is likely a goner. Um, so the other night I actually said, okay, assuming Soto does get traded uh, and, you know, he's only got one year of expensive control, you know, a lot of people think, okay, well, we'll assign him and extend him. So what does that extension look like? Now, I, I mentioned that because, you know, in our new site, we have calculated uh, in our player value timeline section, you can see what the extension for Juan Soto would be. Just like you can see for extensions for, you know, uh, Pete Alonso or other future, uh, you know, guys who, or, or even guys who are not as close to free agency that, you can see their extension value. And so back to Soto, you can say, okay, well, if we traded for him, we'd have to pay, if we want to extend him as well, you know, we'd have to pay quite a lot of money to extend him, and that's no secret. Obviously, you know, that number could start with a five, depending on how long, you know, the contract goes. Um, in our model, we go up to 10, and it's, you know, he's going to make like $38 million a year or so for 10 years. Um, is an AAV, 12 years, probably similar to that. We'd be like $36 million a year, and, you know, could even go a little bit beyond 12 years because he's a young guy. So, 
Um, but anyway, I just wanted to say, yes, you can play with our extension estimates on, on him and others as well um, on our new site. Um, but I don't know if he's going to get traded or not, but I do know any team that trades for him is probably thinking long term like that. So it's going to cost you a whole lot of money and and some trade capital as well. So that's a tall order. And the one reminder I want to add there, because we every single time there's one of these superstars on an expiring deal, we hear this kind of bad counter argument when we say, hey, because of the, the contract that this guy is currently on, because it's only one year and because he is being paid $33 million or somewhere in that range through arbitration, his his value in a trade is limited. We have him at 22.9, which is still pretty substantial when you're talking about that on top of a $33 million salary. And every time something like this comes up, whether it's Soto or Otani, or there's been others in the past as well, there's always the response of, oh, well, any team that's trading for him is going to lock him up to an extension anyway, so they'll be willing to give up more. And I think, you know, there, there's maybe a piece of truth in there. You know, if you do, I, I think it's reasonable to say a team that has an extension locked up for Soto will be, would be willing to pay more in a trade than a team that's only getting him for one year. The difference comes in, though, that the, the point where I take issue is like, I don't think that's a substantial difference. I don't think it's substantially more that a team is willing to pay. And that's because, like you were just saying, they're going to be locking him up to a market rate extension. It's not that they're going to get some big discount on him. He's going to be signing a deal now that he's close to free agency. If he is signing an extension somewhere, it's going to be a deal that's pretty close to what he would get in free agency. So there's not going to be any surplus on that extension. So again, we're just looking at the 2023 surplus, or excuse me, the 2024 surplus. And so that's all it can truly be factored in from a trade standpoint. Again, I, I think there's... A point to be made that yeah there's some some level of certainty and you know you'd you'd rather throw in that extra prospect for 11 years of Juan Soto even at a higher price point than you would for one year of Juan Soto and so I think there's a shred of something there but on the whole it's not going to change his trade value so substantially it's still pretty limited because of the single year of control before he hits those high free agent dollar values and the high dollar value that he already has for that one year of control. Yeah, yeah. So just to reiterate to your point, there's no extra surplus value for signing him long term. You're paying top dollar for his you know, years of control beyond beyond this one, right? Because Scott Boris is his agent. He's a young guy. Uh, Soto meaning he's like what 25 so he's going to have a long free agency ahead of him and you know and um, he's just coming into his prime years so you're going to pay top dollar for him so if you tack that on yes from a baseball only field value perspective of course you know that's a huge win but from a salary and if you're looking from the owners and the GM's perspective you're paying top dollar for over extended period of time you're paying a big contract so there's no surplus value in that contract and so and as close as he is to free agency with Scott Boris as his agent you know you're not getting a, a, a you know a discount on that so is what it is <laughs> so it's you know, comparable yeah. <laughs> to the Lindor deal for the Mets that's mm -hmm. essentially what happened there they yeah. traded for a year of Lindor they paid market rate. That was a pretty fair deal, according mm -hmm. to our model. I don't have the numbers in front of me right yeah, now, but it, it lined up pretty perfectly. 
with uh, Jimenez and Rosario and the prospects going the other direction and Carrasco joining Lindor in that deal. It, it ended up being very fair on, on a value perspective. And then they locked him up to a market rate extension. And so far that's worked very well for them, but it's still a market rate extension. So you, yeah, yeah like, like we've been saying, it's, it doesn't add value. I think you could, again, make an argument about the certainty, the security, the confidence, the, you know, jersey sales and ticket sales that you're kind of banking in for the 10 years of that deal, of that deal. But it's also not necessarily an Otani situation where Otani is going to bring this massive pull internationally. And he's kind of the unicorn, he's a unicorn in, in more ways than one. And one of those ways being just the kind of media impact that he has and and the kind of additional revenue he can bring that way i think soto has some of that but he's not quite at that otani level so we yeah we can't yeah he's a different person he's, he's a different personality obviously he's not quite that that level of stardom um but you know he's an amazing hitter but i also wanted to make one other point if you sign him to a really long contract keep in mind he's a terrible defensive outfielder um he moved from right field to left field and he was clanking all over the place this past year there with balls that should have been chased down <laughs> i mean he just looked all you know he's a dh after 30 he's a dh and so you're paying top dollar for you know basically a hitter <laughs> and not a fielder so keep that in mind as well when you think about how much it's going to cost and we've baked that into our numbers as well right and he's that that makes it even more impressive the the type of value that he is worth today and the type of numbers we are expecting in an extension given that his glove is a zero and his base running is pretty close to that as well it just speaks to how incredibly pure of a hitter that he is but it is a, it is something that needs to be factored in and needs to be yeah. kept in mind yeah. especially as he ages right okay um Annual De Los Santos turns into a long discussion on Juan Soto and Shohei Otani. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way we roll. Yep. Uh, let's move on to uh, this Mariners-Red Sox deal. I'm sure we'll find a way to jump from Luis Urias to uh, Mike Trout or <laughs> Rafael Devers or something along those lines. <laughs> but uh, the Mariners acquired Luis Urias at $1.2 million in median trade value from the Red Sox in exchange for right-handed pitcher Isaiah Campbell at $1.9 million. So pretty fair deal there. Urias, uh, he was with the Brewers for a while there, and then at the deadline last year after a pretty lost 2023 season, uh, they flipped him to the Red Sox. Down the stretch for the Red Sox, he was kind of okay. He was like league average-ish, like replacement level somewhere around there. Um, and he was looking like a non-tender candidate. Instead, he's going to go to Seattle. Um, we can maybe use this as an opportunity to talk about Seattle and some of the news that's been coming out of there and, and how not inspiring it is and whether Urias is going to be one of their top additions this offseason, which would be pretty catastrophic for them. But uh, circling back to the deal itself and, and finishing that up before we move on to kind of the team periphery there, um, seems like a fair deal. Seems like a fair swap, need for need. The Mariners had room on the infield after Colton Wong was nothing for them last year. And, and that infield is still a little bit uncertain. Whereas the Red Sox were probably going to non-tender the guy and could use some bullpen help. And, and also worth mentioning that Seattle continues to be a reliever factory up there. Like we've talked about in the past. So losing Campbell isn't as tough of a hit for them as it might be for some other team. So seems like it makes all the sense in the world. Um, did anything else stand out about this one to you? Only just, 
why, from the Mariners' standpoint, is the obvious question. Why do you need Luis Urias in, you know, I mean, they've been struggling with that second base role for a while now. They tried Colton Wong. You know, they traded for Josh Rojas. Um, uh, the kid they brought up a while ago, whose name I can't remember, uh, got some playing time there. They've been just rotating guys for that second base. And so, like, all right, let's try Luis Sirius here. Maybe he can lock down second base. And it doesn't seem like it, based on his more recent contributions, that he's the answer. So they're just sort of rotating bench guys, and maybe they're pl- going to platoon them. You know, but... Um, that's all it is. It's basically another flyer on a second base option, as far as I can tell. And to your point, they can, you know, they can replace uh, Campbell pretty easily in the bullpen. So it's, I guess, I guess you can justify it from that perspective as well. Yeah, a Mariners fan I follow on Twitter put it well. He he basically said, "I'm fine with this if Urias is like the fourth largest addition <laughs> for for the 2024 Mariners, yeah, but if he's right. like." number one or number two, then something has gone wrong. And it's a bit concerning given the context of what we're hearing out of Seattle. We're hearing that they are, according to reports, that they're just not going to be in contention for Shohei Otani. That was a popular landing spot for him. But that paired with what uh, Jerry Depoto said earlier this offseason about we're shooting for 86 wins on average over a 10-year span or whatever. We're shooting for 86-win teams, 80, 87, 88-win teams. Um, not the most inspiring picture. That doesn't sound like a team that's going to try and capitalize on this window with the incredible young pitching and Julio and some of those other pieces there and, and try and catch the Rangers and the Astros. That doesn't sound like that's the goal in Seattle right now. It sounds like they're really taking the Cleveland approach like we've talked about of just this sustainable like middle-of-the-pack winner kind of. And that's worked pretty well for Cleveland largely because of their weak division. I don't think the framework works as well for Seattle having to contend with the Rangers and the Astros in the West. I, I think that's a different calculus and I don't I don't want to read too much into one one early offseason move before they've really done anything major to address that team or or haven't done anything major to address that team. But if you're starting to hear rumblings already about, like, we're not going to open up the purse strings too much, and then they make this trade for a guy who's projected to earn almost $5 million in arbitration, while not being a huge difference maker on the field, I think there's some cause for concern there. You know, if, if we're saying there's not much room in the budget, but we're going to spend $5 million of it this way, that doesn't get me too optimistic that we're going to add some real impact pieces elsewhere on this team. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And but you know, you could take the other side of the argument and say, look who was in the World Series this year. It was two teams that nobody expected them to be there. Um, and you know, so it's a crapshoot. So as long as you have, you know, um, as long as you make it there, anything can happen. And they've got the pitching, you know, if they make the playoffs next year, um, to kind of carry them through. So. You know, you can kind of squint and see, okay, all right. And then, you know, it's not just a one-and-done thing. They want, like, to be competitive every year because, you know, if you look at their history, they've been up and down and up and down, and they finally just want, like, a longer window of being up. So I get that. Um, But, yes, and I'm not quite sure where the hesitation is coming from, 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 you know, the budget standpoint and ownership because, you know, they've got their own arsenal. I don't think they're privy to the issues that some of the other teams have. So, you know, there's a larger 
point to be made about declining revenues from the cable TV packages, but for now, I think they're okay on that front. And they've got obviously a huge fan base. They own the entire Northwest. So, and so a little bit of Canada as well. So like they're fine. So I don't know why they're, they would hesitate and maybe it's just gamesmanship and maybe they'll suddenly make a play for, you know, a big, a big fish. I think they probably should, but I think it's too early to tell as well. You know, Depoto can sometimes be a little bit of a game player in the public and then he'll turn around and make something and, you know, trade for Castillo. You know, so, you know, it's early. Let's see. Let's watch what he does. Yeah, still time here, and we're always going to hear rumblings about what they might do with some of those young rotation arms. There, there's room there to trade a younger arm for a younger, cheaper hitter, and you know, you satisfy the fan base and upgrade the team on offense while also not hurting the pocketbook too much. Like, there, there's room for a deal like that, and we're going to continue to hear speculation on that front. Um, it's just a and, and and these are still just reports, still just rumors, nothing concrete yet. But it's probably disappointing to a fan base that's eager and hungry for just to to make a deep playoff run, just to to do something. And you've been thinking for a while about how Otani would be such a great fit there, and all of the reasons for that. And then to pretty early in the off season here. No, nah, we're just shooting for 86, 87, and uh, I don't think he's going to be an option for us. That's got to be disheartening. Um, again, not not to not to take anything away. I think you make a really valid point that, yeah, look at all those super teams or the teams that were built to be super teams and either disappointed and missed the playoffs or just didn't make a deep run, while these two teams with some obvious flaws just went on a heater at the right time and made it all the way. Like, that's as good of an argument as any for a team to not push all their chips in. Um, and there's, there's some validity to it that the playoffs are a crapshoot, but I think you'd like to see a little bit more if you're a Mariners fan. You know, I think the only other thing I could say is they probably look at it as like, okay, we're not going to just shoot our wad at one player. I mean, if you look at their roster resource page, you know, DH is Dominic Canzoni. Nothing against Canzoni, but who would you rather have in the DH spot? Because, you know, Otani's not pitching in 2024, so he'd be your daily DH. Would you rather have Otani or Canzoni? Okay, so uh, that's fine. But then you've got, you know, your second base hole. You've got uh, not much of a bench. Um, you know, it's not a bad looking team on paper. You just got question marks of Kalanick. Is he really, you know, going to turn it on? Ty France had a down year. So like Cade Marlowe's your left fielder. You probably need to upgrade there. So it's like maybe what he's saying is we don't want to spend 50 million on Otani because we want to spread that money around to fill some of these other holes, which makes sense. Yeah, I think that's defensible, but we'll have to see how it shakes out because if that 50 million gets allocated to a bunch of players in this Luis Urias mold, I think some people are going to be rightfully upset. But like like we keep saying, plenty of time for this to shake out, so let's wait and see. Uh, let's move forward to an interesting little deal here between the Marlins and the Rays. It seems like they they trade pretty frequently in, in recent years, and this one is especially interesting because Peter Bendix just uh, hopped over from the Rays to help run the show in Miami, and now he's making a deal pretty much right off the bat with his former team to grab a couple players who were blocked there. Um, so they, the Marlins acquired right-handed pitcher Calvin Fauché at 0.6 million in median trade value. 
and infielder Vidal Brujan at 0.0. In exchange, the Rays get right-handed pitcher Andrew Lindsay at 1.0, infielder Eric Lara, who isn't in the system yet, and either a player to be named later or cash. So ends up being a fair deal. Lara is not going to move the needle on this one too much. Neither is the, the player to be named later, most likely. Um, but it amounts to the Marlins snagging Brujan. He's been, he, he was a former top prospect at one point, but he's kind of gotten what at least I call in my head, the, the Franklin Barreto treatment. It's something we realized pretty early on. And, you know, this is an excellent transition. It happened with Luis Urias as well. <laughs> um, it's something we realized pretty early on in, in kind of the site's infancy that sometimes it's not just the performance that's indicative of whether a player has value or not, or whether his value has gone up or down. Sometimes it's how the team treats the player where Franklin Barreto and Luis Urias, they were top, top prospects, but they were getting jerked up and down between AAA and the majors. And they never really got an extended stay in the big leagues for their team while they were this top prospect. And so uh, Christian Pache is another example here as well, where they might've still had the name value of a top prospect, but then they got traded and treated as a, a bag of peanuts in a trade. And we're like, well, what happened? Well, the team was broadcasting to us by kind of jockeying these guys up and down and not giving them a shot that, they didn't believe in these guys. Mm-hmm. And so if they didn't believe in these guys, why would any other team? That's pretty indicative of some flaw or some lack of development that other teams can see as well. And they're not going to pay a huge price tag for a guy. If, you know, if they desperately need a shortstop and won't hand the job to Franklin Barreto, then why would another team go trade for him and say, yep, I think he can be our answer at shortstop. Like that's just not how that's going to work. So uh, Bruhan is yeah. a very similar case there where you could argue there's still some upside in there. There's there's something to like with the speed for sure, but he's been treated in that way by the Rays for a reason. He never really got a full opportunity there, and it's not just because he was blocked by, you know, a Wander Franco or some of those other top young infielders. Like Taylor Walls played over him a lot, and Taylor Walls isn't anything special. So it, it's pretty indicative of where his value is right now, and that's why he's at zero. Yeah, I mean, teams know their prospects better than anyone else does. They see them every day. They know their nuances, their strengths, their flaws, the whole bit. And so if they don't have confidence in them, and you can see it, then that counts against them. So, yeah, four years, three, three, four years ago, we changed our model to reflect that, that, you know, the clock starts ticking, you know, and if they don't make it after a certain time, you know, if they don't get enough opportunities, that's telling you something. It's telling you that, you know, they're they're basically eating time and and oh by the way their options clock is also ticking and so Bruhan's was as well there's only so many years you can keep him stuck in triple a so he's out of options now so he's either a dfa at this point or you know you give him a shot so peter bendix is like well kind of like the kid so he moves over to miami and trades for him and gives him a shot there maybe he'll get more playing time there than he would in, in tampa bay um Joe Adele also comes to mind. He's out of options now as well. And everybody wonders, well, why hasn't he, you know, he's a big name. He's a good potential superstar, loud tools. Yeah, but, you know, when the the Angels had infield help, did they bring him up? No, they did not. Like, you know, he still strikes out too much. So, you know, we've got him down there as well. So, you know, you got to watch that stuff. You got to watch what the front office does. And so there's a larger point here. We always watch you know, what people do rather than what people say, you know, whether it comes to this example or, you know, their options usage or whatever, they what they do matters more than what they say. So they might say, yeah, you know, um, 
who we think really highly of him, but if they don't actually play him, that tells you what they really think. So this is an example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, otherwise here, it's it's just a continuation, and I'm going to probably say this another one or two times this episode, but the Rays shuffling around their 40-man. They always have too much talent to protect, um, whether that's protecting guys from the Rule 5 or you know once they've already committed roster. Because this, this happened after the Rule 5 deadline. Uh, they already protected the players that they wanted to, but if they need to make other additions to the roster this offseason, well, they're going to need spots for that. And so that's clearing clearing Fauché and Bruhan opens up a couple spots for them there. And then the last part of this, I, I think a commenter on, on Twitter put it well. Uh, they said, if I was a GM and the Rays were interested in one of my prospects, I would immediately offer that player a 10-year contract. <laughs> so I know nothing about Andrew Lindsay or Eric Lara, but I wouldn't be too surprised to hear their name pop up a couple years from now just because it's the Rays and they've earned that level of respect. They have, but look, they're not, they're not, you know, super wizards either. You know, they're very smart, but I'm thinking of the Nathaniel Lowe trade where they got like Heriberto Hernandez, who's now been left off of the, you know, 40 for two years in a row, left unprotected. So he's looking like a bust. And, you know, they, they make these mistakes sometimes too. Okay. So yes, they hit a lot more, but they do miss. And so it's not totally set in stone that if they play some, if they trade for somebody, he's, he's golden, but you know, they, they clearly do their homework. Um, there's been some, uh, one of the folks we, we follow on Twitter has been sort of analyzing how many analytics people they have, you know, how, how many analytics people each team has, um, and the Rays, actually, either I can't remember if they're number one or number two, but they're right up there. They have invested more and more in their analytics department than any other team, as you would. It's not surprising to me. Like, they've invested proportionately more there because they can get more bang for the buck and see these things sometimes and get these insights that perhaps some, some team, other teams who don't have as many people in that area can't see. And that's their competitive advantage, so good for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something that other teams could very well take advantage of and choose not to for some reason. Um, let's let's close the circle here. We we started with a Mariners trade, then we went to Marlins Rays. Well, let's let's now go to Mariners Rays. Uh, a, a very minor deal here as well. The Mariners acquired catcher Blake Hunt from the Rays in exchange for minor league catcher Tatum Levins. Um, this one was Ooh. in advance of the Rule 5. Hot stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I bury the lead with this one. Huh? <laughs> um, Blake Hunt at $2.3 million. Levins wasn't in the system. I feel like Hunt gets traded every season, every offseason. Yeah, he was um, in the Blake Snell trade a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was another 40-man shuffle. This one was in advance of the Rule 5 protection deadline, so it was the Rays offloading a 40-man catcher in Blake Hunt and adding a younger one that doesn't need to be protected yet in Tatum Levins. And that's kind of all there is to it. I don't know if you have a whole lot else to add here, do you? Nope, it is what it is. Cool, let's move on then. Uh, The Rockies picked up right-handed pitcher Cal Quantrill from the Guardians in exchange for minor league catcher Cody Huff. Quantrill was DFA'd um, in advance of... I believe that that was to clear a roster spot as well, um, but he was going to be non-tendered anyway. He's projected to earn $6.6 million in his second year of arbitration. Uh, we have him at $1.5 million median trade value, and we didn't have Huff in the system quite yet, but he will be somewhere in that range, probably a little bit lower, and, and this will be accepted as a fair deal. 
Um, poor Cal Quantrill. He gets to go pitch. He goes from the Cleveland pitching factory where they, given enough time, probably could have made something more out of him, and instead he's gonna he's gonna go pitching cores. Poor guy. Um, but not not a terrible pickup by the Rockies. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing they should be doing of taking advantage of these kind of roster situations on other teams where they can. Not that Quantrill is any superstar. I think even his even his times of stronger performance were kind of uh, seen as seen as an overperformance over his peripherals. They never quite matched up with what he was doing from an ERA standpoint. But he's still an, a, a viable major league pitcher. You know, he's had his ups and his downs, but it's a guy that maybe the Rockies could get some innings out of, and and that's kind of what they what they need to be looking for at this point. So, not something that necessarily sets the world on fire by any means, but. I don't mind the pickup for them. What are your thoughts here? No, I I, I think it makes all the sense in the world for the Rockies because this is really the only way, uh, well, developing, drafting and developing, pitching and or trading for pitching are the only two ways. They cannot sign free agents in Colorado, which, you know, who can blame them? Uh, nobody wants to go pitch there, um, so they have to get them that way. So, yeah, this is a good opportunity for them to do so. Um, from the Guardian standpoint, they got rid of the salary here and then kind of re- it up on the Barlow side, so they, it was probably a, a wash from a salary standpoint there. This is the salary they got rid of. I will say there have been an awful lot of um, – there was a lot – if you ever read our comment sections on our trade boards, we have a lot of Cleveland fans, and some of them were have argued vociferously for Quantrill being, oh, he should be much higher value, much higher. He should be in the teens. I'm telling you, he should be in the teens. And we just kept saying, hey, it doesn't look like, like we in our models because we're looking at peripherals and some of the things, to your point, that are behind the sort of surface level stuff. And it turns out we were right because <laughs> he basically got DFA'd and traded for a you know, low-level prospect. So he should not have been in the teens. He should have been at 1.5. So there we go. Yep, justification. He And it's also nice to see him finally separated from Zach Plesak because I sure mixed those two up a lot. There was when you're just looking <laughs> okay. at the Fangraphs page. There's a lot of similarities between the two of them, and, and I'm glad they get separated here. Um, mm-hmm. Let's move on to the next deal. The Brewers acquired Jake Bowers from the Yankees. Uh, Bowers at negative 1.3 million in median trade value. He was a non-tender candidate for New York. In exchange, the Yankees get outfield prospects Jace Avina and Brian Sanchez. Neither of those were in the model at at the time of the trade, uh, but. Fringe fringe outfield prospects. I mean, not a bad couple guys to pick up if you're the Yankees and you were going to cut this guy anyway, but not nothing earth-shattering by any means. Um, Bowers, he's kind of bounced around the league. He was at one point pretty respected as a prospect. Um, for a minute there, he was kind of a cult hero, <laughs> it, <laughs> it seemed like, at least from, from this side of the country. Um, but then you look at his end of season slash line and not all that pretty. He ended up with a sub sub league average batting line when all was said and done. And he's not much of a defender by any means. And so it's a very limited profile. It's a a lefty slugger without much defense. And we've talked a lot in the past about how those guys just don't get paid, don't get valued much in today's game. And the Brewers could use a slugger like that. They're losing a couple uh, they they just non-tendered Rowdy Telez and uh, I believe Jake uh, Jesse Winker is he a free agent or he's a free agent yeah, yeah. they lost him too 
Yeah, so those are two big left-handed bats who didn't necessarily do much for the Brewers in 2023, but they were expected to, and so there's still kind of a void to fill there. Um, do I think Bowers is going to be the guy to do it and to be an above-average contributor for them? Not necessarily. He's never really been an above-average contributor in his big league career, but it's clear that they're just bringing this guy on as as kind of a lefty bench option. You could do a lot worse. He's not going to break the bank in any way. And yeah, he, he didn't cost them much in trade. So who cares? Yeah. I mean, look, from the Brewers perspective, he's cheaper in salary terms than Rowdy Tellez, who was getting very expensive and he was due to make six something million and he's not worth that. So they non-tendered him and they basically replaced him with Bowers, who is probably worse. Um, and that's not saying a whole lot. But my goodness, if you look at his fan graphs page, negative 0.5 or negative 0.3 or negative 0.4. These are the last three years. 89 diversity plus. He can't even make it up in the offense. We know his defense is bad. So, like, this is not great. So he's not a long-term solution, it looks like, for first base for Milwaukee. Um, uh, but, you know, he's cheaper. And I don't want to go too deep into what does this pretend for the Brewers? Are they reloading? Are they going to trade Burns? Uh, yeah, I think I still I've been arguing this for a while. I think they are going to rebuild. Uh, I think it's time for them. And I'm not saying this Jake Bowers for you know replacing Ready Tellez to save money is a harbinger of that. It, it could be a little signal. It's probably don't want to make too much more of that, but it's a little signal that they're valuing saving money here. And does that mean they're rebuilding? No, not officially, but I suspect they still will anyway. Yeah, and. They they've been doing a lot of shuffling lately. It's been a pretty you know it's it's been on the smaller side for the most part. But we're going to talk more about some of their moves in in just a little bit here, and actually right away because the next one we have is the A's acquiring infielder Abraham Toro from the Brewers. We had Toro at negative one point three. He was a non tender candidate for Milwaukee. In exchange, the Brewers got Chad Patrick. He's a right handed pitcher who the A's actually acquired last deadline in exchange for Jace Peterson from Arizona. Um, Patrick not yet in the system, but that's going to shake out to be a fair deal. He's kind of a, a fringe non prospect reliever. Um, Toro, he's been traded a couple times at this point um, from the Astros to the Mariners to the Mariners to the Brewers, and now from the Brewers to the A's. So he'll be back in the AL West. Switch hitter doesn't have a lot to him. He's been a below average hitter the last couple of years. He actually didn't really get much of a big league opportunity last year. Um, he, like I said, he was a non-tender candidate. There's not really much to much to talk about here on his side of it. But then for the Brewers, it's continuing to kind of chip away at the the payroll in the spots that they can and shuffle these pieces around. Um, anything. Anything groundbreaking from this deal for you? No, I mean, just from the ace perspective, um, clearly just throwing spaghetti on the wall, hoping something sticks, and okay, let's. we don't have a third baseman who's gotten the job, so let's try this guy. I mean, he was cheap to acquire. Uh, this trade is basically working out to zero against probably 0 0.1, you know, if Patrick were in the system. So it's totally fair. Uh, Toro is out of options, and so most teams would not be able to fit him on the roster because he hasn't shown that he can hit big league hitting, big league pitching rather, consistently. So he's a bench guy, but you can't um, you can't send him back down to AAA, so he has to be on your roster. So the A's had a roster spot from a third base uh, hole to fill, so they figured, okay, give him a shot. Um, but yeah, it's another example of the Brewers uh, saving a couple bucks as well. Yeah. 
All right, and uh, last couple trades we have here are taking it back again to the uh, the 40-man Rule 5 protection deadline. The Brewers, once again, last move for them, or last trade for them, I should say. Um, they acquired infielder Oliver Dunn from the Phillies. Uh, we did not have Dunn in the system at the time. I'm not sure if he's been added since then. Um, in exchange, they sent the Phillies outfielder Hendry Mendez, who we had at 2.5, and infielder Robert Moore at 3.3. So that's a substantial gap, or at least it looks like it would be uh, on the surface, of 5.8 total value heading to the Phillies and a guy that we didn't even have ranked in our system going to the Brewers. Um, but looking at it a little bit closer, this is just likely just kind of a timing quirk of Mendez and Moore both had some prospect status, but both really struggled in 2023. It was kind of a, I don't want to go as far as to say a lost year, but certainly a disappointing year for both of them. And so you can kind of put a down arrow on that 2.5 and that 3.3 while Dunn had a bit of a breakout season and he's a bit of an older prospect, but he did just perform pretty well. Um, and, and kind of shot up his own hype. And I saw some reports from some prospect folks that he is, a name that might be worth keeping a, a bit of an eye on. So it, it it's a reasonable trade, or at least it looks like one. And then, like I said, the last consideration there being the 40-man of it all, where Mendez and Moore do not need to be protected, but Dunn did need to be protected from this year's Rule 5 draft. So he did go on to the Brewers 40-man, whereas the Phillies took him off of theirs. Um, I thought this was interesting. These kind of prospect challenge trades are always kind yeah. of fun and and. This one, like I said, looked a little bit off because of the timing. I bet, you know, five, six months from now when all of the publications have come out with their off-season prospect lists, I bet this one will look a lot better. Yeah, so Dunn will start. He's a pop-up, basically. And he'll start appearing on lists. And the other two will start going down, so it's probably netting out to be a fair trade once those things happen. Um, the caveat with Dunn is that, as you mentioned, he's an older prospect. He spent the year in A. Uh, he had a really nice offensive season at 271, 396, 506, 148 WRC plus. That's going to jump off the page until you realize he's a 25-year-old in Double A. And so, how is that going to translate in the major leagues? Eh, eh. <laughs> Big question mark there. So he's still going to be even if he, you know, he still hasn't, hasn't even like captured, uh, conquered Triple A yet. So, you know. And he was a minor league free agent, I believe. He was with the Yankees in their system prior to this and uh, bounced around a little bit. So, you know, it's not – don't expect, you know, just because he had this fine season in double-A that he's going to set the world on fire. Yeah, there's always a late bloomer here and there, but probably not. And so he's probably going to be a bench guy, if at all. And so, you know, even if he does pop, pop up in prospects list, it's not going to be a huge thing. And like you mentioned, the other two guys are trending down because they didn't even crack 100 on their WRC+. Plus, so – it's a fair deal when you look at everything, uh, all the components of it. Yeah. And then last move here, another 40-man one to, to protect before the Rule 5. Uh, the Phillies acquired right-handed pitcher Michael Mercado at 1.6 in median trade value from the Rays in exchange for right-handed pitcher Adam Leverett, who was not yet in the system, and cash, which we don't know the value of. Um, Mercado comes off the 40-man for the Rays, opens up a spot there. That's about all I have for this one. I got nothing on this one. <laughs> all right, let's Come get on. into some more interesting transactions then. We've said the word non-tender probably 30 yeah. or 40 times so far this episode. Let's talk about some of the other big guys who did get non-tendered. And there's one obvious front runner here. 
that's Brandon Woodruff. Um, we talked about him a bit in previous episodes because he had a late season shoulder injury that really, it, it, it was just very unfortunate given the timing of it. Um, he was about to enter his final year of arbitration. He was due to make about $11.6 million. Um, I'm not sure if that figure, that estimation from Matt Swartz, I'm not sure if that factors in the shoulder injury or not. So I, I don't know if we can say, oh, if he was healthy, that might have been a little bit higher. Um, but he was he was due for a pretty substantial salary in his final year of arbitration there. And then he was going to hit free agency. And so he, Burns, and he, Corbin Burns, and Willie Adamas were kind of looked at as this trio of pending free agents for the Brewers where what are they going to do with these guys? Is it time to rebuild and push these guys in and, and make some deals with them? Are they going to pick one that they like and extend them and, and then roll with the other two and see what happens at the deadline? There were some options here, and the injury to Woodruff really kind of derailed everything. And for him personally, really awful timing. He's been such a good and reliable pitcher, and suddenly out of seemingly nowhere – another shoulder injury and shoulder surgery, and he's going to miss reportedly the majority of the 2024 season. Um, it seems like there's at least an opening for him to come back at some point compared to a guy like Kyle Wright, where it just seems like he's he's definitely done for 2024. There's maybe a chance of Woodruff coming back next season, but not a high one, not worth it for the Brewers to keep him on for 11 or 12 million dollars just to maybe pitch a few games at the end of the year and who knows how how good those games are going to be um so i'm sure they explored some options of of multi-year deals here but couldn't come to anything it was reported that they also explored some trades and couldn't quite come to anything and so now he's non-tendered he's a free agent it's again just just terrible timing from his side of things where he's finally about to get his payday and then a bad injury at the worst possible time costs him not only the 11 or 12 million this year, but puts his true free agent contract kind of in jeopardy um, once he is healthy. But yeah. he, he'll certainly be a, a talked about name here because he is, he's an interesting option as these guys often are where there's an opportunity for a discount here. There's an opportunity for a deal where you're paying regular back to usual back to normal Brandon Woodruff a well below market rate to be a really solid pitcher for you in 2025 once he's back healthy but since it's a shoulder we and we typically see this happen with elbow injuries with Tommy John and but this is a shoulder I think there's even more uncertainty baked into it and, and more concern yeah totally first of all I feel bad for the guy he's a great guy by all accounts and just uh, really unlucky timing because he's been so good um but yeah, I mean, from the Brewers' perspective, you can't blame them for, you know, uh, non-tendering him because you're not going to get anything out of him. And as we just said, it seems like they're cutting back. So you're not going to pay $11.6 million to a guy who's not going to give you anything this year, especially if you're not going to compete. So, you know, they had to make that decision. That was a tough decision for them, but they had to clearly uh, save the money. Um, when there were reports surfacing that they were shopping him in trade, I had to... S- I scrunched my face a little bit like, who would trade for him, like under these circumstances? Um, the shoulder injury, as we as we talked about, is bad. And um, I saw some reports that, like, in particular, the way his is, is particularly bad. So that's not somebody that I think would, I mean, you only got, so you, you basically know he's going to be out most of the year. So you would only get maybe a sliver of towards the end of the year. 
And I know they try to put a, uh, a happy face on it. It's like, oh, maybe only miss half the year. I don't think so. The shoulder injury stuff is scary to other teams. It scares them away. So the most likely scenario is they won't pitch at all in 2024, in which case, what are you trading for? Because then, you know, they've got – then his control runs out. Or maybe he pitches a little bit towards the end, in which case you're not paying $11.6 million for that. So, like, I don't understand what that conversation could possibly have been if you wanted to trade for him other than, hey, the Brewers would kick in a prospect or kick in money. But why would the Brewers do that when they could just say say goodbye and non-tender him? So clearly that was the only option, and that's exactly what happened. Um so I can see maybe one team at this point taking a flyer on him and saying maybe like something that looked like the Tyler Glasnow deal where you pay him a little bit during his rehab now and then like a, a big chunk next year, hoping for a bounce back season. But again, the shoulder injury is going to be scaring teams away. So I can see somebody doing that in the, you know, maybe not a $25 million deal uh, for this year that, that Glasnow got, but maybe something like a couple million to rehab and like 10 or 12 million. Like similar to what his um, uh, <clears throat> similar to what his his ARB three uh, last arbitration year salary might have been. I'll have to check our site and see what what the numbers say. Uh, but I, I suspect somebody will take a gamble on him with a flyer at a deal kind of like that, hoping that you know he comes back okay in twenty twenty four, not twenty twenty five rather. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping for better things for him, but right now it looks it looks bleak in the short term. Um, moving forward to the rest of the non-tenders here, I don't think there were any real surprises at all. It was a lot of the guys that you'd kind of expect. You know, there's some names on this list. There's a, a Rowdy Telez, like I said earlier, um, a Dakota Hudson, I guess, uh, Mike Ford, Garrett Hampson, Luis Guillorme, Dominic Smith, Austin Nola, Tim Hill, Matt Bush, Nick Senzel. You know, there's there's Austin Meadows, Spencer Turnbull. There's there's names on here that you know, and so maybe might raise somebody's eyebrows at at, at first glance. But these are all guys who were starting to get into their arbitration years, starting to get real money, and haven't been performing at that level. So I don't know if there's anybody else you want to go deeper into specifically on that front, or just talk about kind of the non-tenders generally. So so two points. One, I just checked our numbers with. Uh, with Woodruff being um, non-tendered, um, it changed in our model because now he's a free agent. And so what would a deal like that? So a two-year deal would basically be at a 12 annual rate. So if you multiply it by two, so he'd basically get like a 224 um, deal. So $24 million total, figure like $4 million or so in the in the, uh, in the 2024 while he rehabs and like $20 million on on the hope that he can be something like what he was in 2025. So that makes sense, right? Um, so that's, I just want to close the loop on that. Uh, as for the non-tenders, I mean, you know, we've been kind of singing the song for a while on Nick Senzel. He's just been a, a disappointment. Um, there's a tiny little sliver of hope where maybe somebody uses him as a platoon guy because he can hit lefty pitching a little bit better than righty pitching. A lot better, actually. So maybe there's a little hope for him there, but nobody's going to pay a whole lot for that. But basically, we'll look at Jordan Luplo. That's been his, he's bounced around everywhere. That's the one thing Jordan Luplo can does can do. So maybe Nick Senzel has a future of that. Um, you know, for a while, Spencer Turnbull was kind of a, a guy people were talking about. I don't know what happened, but he had a terrible year, and so now he's a non-tender. 
Uh, Austin Meadows sadly has a lot of issues, both you know physical and mental health issues, which he's to his credit been very upfront about. But I think that's scaring teams, teams away. And um, you know Dominic Smith had his one year and then nothing, so that's not surprising. I don't know. I mean, you can kind of like you're really shopping at the bargain bin after at this point <laughs> with most of these names. Dakota Hudson was once thought to be a promising arm, never really materialized. Yeah. You know, I, these guys maybe are mostly looking at minor league deals at this point. Maybe a small major league deal here and there. Yeah, it's a weaker non-tender class yeah. than the last handful of years. I mean, there's going to be a couple names from this list that pop up as relievers, I'm sure. You know, would you be surprised at all if somehow Lou Trevino or Albert Abreu or Giovanni Moran or even a guy like Spencer Turnbull, Josh Stalmont, uh, yeah. Wyatt Mills, Matt Bush. Would you be surprised if any of those guys snuck into an all-star game or something? Not at all. That's just how relievers work. Right. Trevor Gott and yeah, yeah. I, there's there's a good number of them on this list. Cody Hoyer, uh, he he yeah. kind of fell off he, the face of the earth. <laughs> well, he got injured. In yeah, surgery, and someone had a little blip there a couple of years mm-hmm. ago where he was pretty good. And, you know, you can say that for a, a number of these guys. Yeah, but the point is that with all of those warts, with all of the risk involved, they got to a point where they weren't projected to be as, worth as much as their salary was projected to be. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, they go out to the open markets. They'll probably jump on somewhere for a little bit cheaper than they would have been projected to earn, and we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we are wrapping up on time here, but I just want to quick fly through and update on the managerial carousel we've been tracking and it's almost all settled. I think the Padres might be the only team that doesn't have a manager now that is still looking for one. I I may be missing a team there. Um, You're right. At the end of all of this, you know, out of nowhere come the Chicago Cubs to hire Craig council, get him away from the division rival brewers. They are paying him a ton of money. It's, it's $40 million over five years, which is pretty amazing. Um, that it's by far the most he was offered. Plus it's pretty close to home for him. And and there were some family considerations there. So it just sounds like it all kind of aligned for them. Um, that we, we could probably get more in depth on that and and maybe in a later episode, but just to, to rattle off all the names here, um, to replace him, the Brewers promoted Pat Murphy, who is their longtime bench coach, also a former Sun Devil, go Devils. Uh, the Guardians hired Stephen Vogt, which is a fun one. He's a guy that's been, ticketed as a future manager basically since he broke Mm -hmm. into the majors and he gets that chance uh it's it's a bit surprising given that he was coaching for just a year he was uh like i think he was like a quality control coach or or something along those lines Mm -hmm. for the mariners and then immediate yeah it was bullpen and quality control coach and he immediately gets bumped up to guardians manager to replace a likely hall of famer and terry francona so uh big shoes to fill there but I have no doubts that he'll be at least an adequate manager. He's he's a, one of the most beloved guys in the game. Well, he's he's also one of the funniest guys in the game. He yes. does great impressions. He keeps everything loose, and the guys love him for that. Yes, absolutely. Um, the Mets hire Carlos Mendoza away from the Yankees, their, their former bench coach. And there's a lot of, you know, that's not a name that was necessarily on my radar, but it got some pretty good reviews from around the game. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. And then last one on the list for now is Joe Espada, another case of a longtime bench coach there. He's been interviewed for a lot of different jobs over the last handful of years, and he gets promoted to replace uh, Dusty Baker, 
managing the Astros. So congrats to all of those folks, I guess. Um, yeah, good for them. Some big names moving around and some, some I don't want to say lesser names, but maybe um, lower profile names that have been around the game for a while finally getting their chance. And so it's an interesting crop of first-time managers and, or not, not first-time managers, an interesting crop of, of new managers in new places. And uh, we'll see what name the Padres add to that mix as well once they make their decision. The last item we will get to, and I just want to briefly touch on this, is the MLB owners unanimously voted to approve the A's move to Las Vegas. Um, it, it, it was a formality. You know, there were a lot of people, a lot of dramatic social media posts about it's official. And, you know, in Vegas, they made the sphere into a welcome A's sign and all of this nonsense. Um, total formality, you know, from a logical standpoint, I think there are reasons that the, and we, we can't get too deep into this, but I think there are reasons that other owners should be skeptical of this move and of getting into bed with John Fisher for an extended period of time. Um, but I, I, I also think that they are aware of some of those, those concerns. And there were some provisions within this agreement of, you know, Fisher is going to be taxed very heavily if he decides to sell the team shortly after moving to Vegas and, and things like that. Um, I think they know what's for the most part, what's going on here, but they also know that they need to approve this, get this situation taken care of both for the optics of it all and to the, so they can hurry up and get expansion to happen and rake in the fees from expansion. So all the reasons in the world for this to, to just get greenlit, even if there is no real development plan or relocation plan or any kind of plan, any realistic renderings of anything in Vegas, um, they greenlit it anyway, mostly a formality. There is still one big hurdle in Vegas of the potential of this going to a referendum and, the voters being able to choose whether they want their tax money being spent on this stadium or not. And that's really going to be what decides whether this happens or not. So uh, I, you know, I'll, putting even my own personal beliefs about this whole process and all the nonsense aside, that is still one last hurdle. And I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be counting on the Vegas A's until we hear what happens there. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and, you know, I just want to come – there's a lot to unpack here, and we don't have time for it. But, you know, I don't want to get into the whole fan side of things either. But um, the owners, you know, clearly want – you know, no surprise it all comes down to money, right? So they were pressuring John Fisher to complete, you know, the stadium thing one way or the other. And he had a deadline of it has to be done by January um, one way or the other, whether it was Oakland or Vegas. And so it was faster to move in Vegas than it was in Oakland, or at least so, so he says – um, so that was the reason for it. And they want to get this thing work. They want the, this whole issue off the table, this one and the raised one so that they can get to expansion. That's, and that's where the money is. They're concerned about the whole Valley sports thing and the RSN money kind of starting to dribble up, uh, dry up a little bit over the years. And so they need to kind of re rejigger the revenue sources. So it's what it was all about. If you get a bunch of owners together, they talk money, and that's what that was. So it's no surprise from that standpoint. Um, I still think there are also um, – I don't think there are any major hurdles other than the one you mentioned. But you know they've got to actually build the thing, and it's probably going to cost more than Fisher estimates because that's the way it always works. Um, but it, and it's a small footprint on a small piece of land that they're renting. So like, okay, it's weird. But um, you know, I, I I think it'll all work out in the end for them, and then we'll see at what point that affects the the team and the budget and everything. But we're not there yet, so I'm not surprised by any of it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, neither am I. Doesn't make it an 
any happier of an occasion, no. at, at least from my <laughs> standpoint or for a lot of other yeah. longtime folks in Oakland that I know. But it's it's not over yet. We'll We'll be hearing more about this for sure. But all right, I think that was a pretty jam-packed episode, and I, I think uh, we've touched on pretty much everything. Do you have anything else to add today? Uh, no, um, other than, hey, check out our new site. Um, we have a lot of cool stuff, uh, including free agent uh, you know, valuations, extension valuations, you know, all kinds of other fun tools to play with. As the free agents start to, as those dominoes start to fall, you can check and see how our model sort of does and, and you know, see how our, we don't call them predictions. We, we have a way to kind of say, okay, you can play around with, you know, eight years, 10 years, 12 years, what's Latona going to get? You, you have a lot of ways and, and it will adjust the average annual value accordingly based on risk and other factors. So um, that's part of the fun of it. So we'll be doing that as free agents start to sign. And of course, you know, as more trades happen, we'll be on top of those as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to some more fun news over the coming weeks. But uh, in the meantime, I, John, I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving, and I hope all our listeners do as well. You too. Thanks. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.